1: Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we are joined by former University of Miami All-American and high-performance tennis coach Todd Whittem to explore all sorts of topics related to the tennis world. Of course, we had to reflect on Todd's career. I wanted to ask him not only about some of the matches he played, but how college tennis has changed over the past two decades since he competed for the University of Miami, of course. I also wanted to explore Todd's coaching philosophies. As a high-performance coach, how does Todd ensure that some of his students remain enthusiastic, remain engaged with the sport, develop the passion for it that so many of us tennis fans already have, of course? Again, all of those topics make for a fascinating conversation here on today. Show that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, before we get to it, a shout out as always to our dear friends at Swing Vision. Remember to have access to all of Swing Vision's artificial intelligence technology. Just download the Swing Vision app today. Learn more by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast and use our promo code CRACK20 to let them know we sent you there. But with that in mind, let's get to it. Here's my discussion with the one and only Todd Whittem. Hey, crack fans. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a guest you may all know best as a former NCAA semifinalist during his time at the University of Miami. Of course, he also won multiple pro titles during his career and was once described by ESPN as a redheaded, blue-eyed journeyman from Coral Springs, Florida. Let's welcome onto the show that journeyman now, Todd Whittem. Welcome. How are you doing this morning, my friend?
0: I'm doing very well, and you have done your research. I'm very impressed. Very well, I,
1: good. I do what I can in the build-up to these shows to read whatever's possible. And look, I played doubles with a ginger growing up, and so I very have an affinity for red-headed tennis players. Um, that's quite the description, though. I mean, they just laid it out there.
0: Yeah, well, I had one gentleman when I was younger tell me, all redheads are good at tennis, so your doubles partner is very good. You know,
1: he is good. Some could argue he carried me towards the latter half of our career together. But uh, no, it is obviously great to have the chance to chat with you today. And there are so many different places. Obviously, I want to take this conversation. I think the place for us to start is you have spent a lifetime in tennis. And I know you've talked about this on other shows you have done. But just for our listeners, what is it about this sport that keeps drawing you back?
0: Sure. Well, I've had a real tremendous passion for the game since I was six years old, right? so for for anyone that knows me, um, you know, I grew up playing tennis and golf here in South Florida, right? So my dad was a really good amateur golfer and my mom was into tennis, so I was I was exposed to both at six years old. Um, starting at seven, I was brought by my by my dad's friend, to a training arena big academy here in south florida that was producing a lot of the champions in the late 80s 90s early 2000s and uh it was a tremendous arena we were trained in a very rigorous program it was maybe like what you maybe consider a tony nadal type upbringing there and they were with argentine guys that were disciplinarians and you know, and we were doing it the right way each and every day. So it was tremendous for a young player like myself. I was a beginner. Right. And I was put in that arena, um, you know, starting with half hour lessons and some groups and playing with the adults and the kids. And it was just such a blast. And then you were around some of the best professionals in the world in the same arena, you know, all the time. So, so it was, it was great. Um, Unfortunately, one of those Argentine gentlemen that trained me passed away when I was 15. And keep in mind, I was trained by the same two gentlemen my whole career from when I was six years old to when I retired from the tour at 26. So the other Argentine gentleman, Pierre Arnold, if you follow my my social media, um, he's with me every day. So that's really special. And I love him. And, and, you know, I mean, he was really a fatherhood figure to me. So so that's a little bit of the upbringing. And I played all my junior tennis, you know, here out of Florida. Um, Like you said, I played at the University of Miami and then I had a six year professional career. And now I run what I consider my private school for very serious tennis players out of Coral Springs, Florida, which is basically the western part of Fort Lauderdale. And I've been doing that for 12 years.
1: Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a fascinating origin story, and the reason I ask is so frequently, there's a discussion floating around tennis spheres of how do we grow the game and I do think fundamentally what it comes down to is inspiring that passion you've had for the game since you were six years old it's a passion that resonates very much with me as I've had it similarly since I was six years old and you know for me it was my older brother played so of course I was going to play tennis and the better I was the more I got to hang out with him and his friends because it's like hey you guys aren't that much better than me like you might as well bring me around as your fourth guy and you know those sorts of little moments early on it sort of fuels the fire and then from there you're hooked and the reason i bring that up is to say do you think we do a good enough job today of getting young players young athletes hooked on the sport are we doing enough job in that respect as we try to grow the game in all these different fashions
0: well no, I don't think so. Okay. And, and the and the other thing is, you know, when you look at, you know, there's an astounding rate of kids that drop out of tennis, I believe, by the time they're 12 or 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So what, what are the reasons? Yeah. Right. You know, because most of my students are, you know, I have some young ones that are, say, 10 to 12 years old, but usually it's a teenager that enters my arena. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so why are we losing, you know, a lot of kids? to tennis you know at at, by the time they're 12 or 13 years old well you know maybe it could be results maybe it could be you know communication with parents maybe there's too much pressure but i believe from what i've read you know is that you know kids are not having fun right you know so when i went to tennis practices and tournaments it was a blast for me i loved it i couldn't get enough right my parents had to pull me off the court i was there you know i was you know they had to close the club and my mom Like Todd, we need to go home. I'm like, no, I got to do some more crunches or I got to hit more forehand, Right. And so, you know, I I just couldn't get enough. I loved it so much. I had such a passion for the game. Um, Are there things that we can do better in tennis to keep kids in the game longer? Yes, I believe so. I believe we need more team events. Right. We need kids coming together. We need to get the kids together. They need to be competing together, you know, like zonals type events, intersectionals, like a college tennis atmosphere. So much fun. Right. That would be tremendous for, for, you know, whether it's a 10 year old or an 18 year old, I think, you know, when you get the kids together and they're like-minded and they love the game and they have a passion for the game, that'll really help them continue, you know, It's tough for young students and young kids that, you know what, if they're not having great results in tournaments, it's easy maybe to walk away. Well, why are they maybe not having great results in tournaments? Well, if we're talking about youngsters and growing the game and keeping them in the game, well, the coaching has to be great. The fundamentals have to be great. Doing things properly on a daily basis, having a great system, you know all those things have to be in place so that kids continue to progress And they have, I'm not talking about winning all the tennis tournaments, but they're progressing and they're, you know, they might be winning, they might be losing, but they're not losing all their tennis matches, right? Where it's just such a, such a mess in tournaments. And, you know, hey, I could understand that's very frustrating, not only for, you know, children, but also for parents as well.
1: Yeah, this is why, and we were talking about this before the show started for all of you listeners, this is how I know you are a podcast veteran. You heard my question, and you knew what I was really asking, and you just got right into the whys, which I very much appreciate, and that's why it's great to have you on the show here today, and you know, it's interesting to hear you bring up the team aspect, because one thing that, again, to relate to my own experience, which in the end is really all I can do, high school tennis was the clincher for me playing on the team, as you alluded to. It was just like, yep, this is it. This is the sport for me. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's obviously taken me to where I am today now. Would you recommend, because you work with high-level juniors, it's interesting to hear you talk about zonals and team events like that. Would you tell a high-level junior to play a year or two of high school tennis? Do you think that might help their enthusiasm for the sport, maybe? Or do you think that might hamper their development? good question
0: <laughs> so it depends how it's managed okay right very straightforward person anybody that knows me I'm gonna tell it to you you know very straightforward and no nonsense that's kind of that's how I was brought up and everything um, if you're spending time practicing with the teammates and you're playing all these matches and you're missing your training time with your coach and it's really taking away you know training from those you know a couple of months that you're playing high school tennis that could be tough, you know, depending on the level of that student. Right. I, you know, and I, I was in that same predicament as well. Right. I, I play, I played a couple of years of high school tennis, but you know, they, they were very, very good to me, you know, the coach and everything in the school that you don't have to come to practices. We just need you for, you know, these specific matches and everything. So, you know, getting, you know, getting students together on a high school tennis team is, is, is great. I mean, it, it's so, you know, socially, it's fantastic. And, you know, it's just it's a lot of fun. Um, the same thing as college as well. Right. So, you know, um, you know, it depends on the level of the student, you know, that that I, that I would say. I mean, if we have a kid that's, you know, one of the top in the country. Right. Do they really need to play high school tennis to go to a great college? No. Are they doing it for other reasons? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, not not a problem. Just make sure it's not affecting you know their tennis development, so that they continue along the path, you know, of achieving what they would love to achieve.
1: Mm-hmm. We were very fortunate. Our number one played at Dartmouth. Our two played at Chicago, and like from there, again, it was a good team, top to bottom. Everyone could have played college tennis, and I feel like in an environment like that. To your point, it would make more sense. And, you know, we had a coach who coaches players who went on to uh, play in college, all these different things. So that does definitely resonate with me. You know, you talk about your upbringing. Quick tangent. If I'd have asked 1998 Todd Whittem, is Philip King going to be number one in the world? Would you have answered yes?
0: Oh, man. Jeez. This is a <laughs> I've good done one. my
1: research. Wow. Uh, well, In
0: my mind, I don't know, but I can tell you about him because I played him. I played him at NCAAs. I played him on the tour, and he's a couple years older than me. And he was 280 on the ATP tour before he went to Duke. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you knew that, but Mm -hmm. you, with your research, I'm impressed. There's a good chance you knew that, right? So I went to Kalamazoo, and and that was the first time I saw him, and he was beating – Andy Roddick and Marty fish and that whole generation, he was winning multiple Kalamazoo titles. And I swear that guy, he didn't miss a ball. Right. (laughs) And, And, and interesting story is that when I went to college, we went to Duke my freshman year and, uh, and I knew him as a superstar, right. He was an incredible player. One of the top college guys, of course. And, um, and I had a battle with him and he beat me in three sets, you know, but that was a guy that was a couple of years older than me. And I looked up to him and I knew that he had such tremendous success in amateur tennis. Um, and so that was a tough match, but then I was able to get him.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right?
0: <And I> was, <laughs> to, to, uh, to become an all American. So that was a great moment for me. But, um, and, and we played on tour and I played some doubles with him as well. Um, but to be number one in the world, you know, you need a lot, obviously there's a lot of factors involved, but, uh, but as an amateur, tremendous, I mean, just, you know, well, I mean, one of the best.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I am curious, Oh, one Prakash Amritraj, does he have the biceps at that time? Uh, no. And yeah. I played him <laughs> times, but I love him on the
0: tennis channel. He's a great guy. I played him many times throughout amateur and pro tennis, mm-hmm. um, but that guy, he's done a tremendous
1: job with his body. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. Another guy, another Duke uh, guy uh, on the board there. And, you know, the reason I bring those two names up is obviously looking back at that era, there was a group of guys, you know, you have a Bogomolov in there as well, who wins Kalamazoo that year No. one a Brian Baker in that group as well. Uh, you know, there were some guys who didn't go to college, some guys who did choose to. I know, you know, at the time, I'm curious, let's start there what was the, uh, well, A, I guess, did you have pro aspirations and how did college factor into that at the time?
0: Sure. Pretty interesting. So from when I was six or seven years old, it was my goal to be a pro. Mm -hmm. And you have kids that talk about, oh, I want to be a pro. No, no, no. I was trained very well and very hard and very rigorously to be a professional from a very young age, Mm -hmm. right? And people may frown upon this, but Pierre's partner, George, at that time was training the professionals. Their main guy was Jay Berger, right? He was top ten in the world, right? Many of you probably have heard of him. He was top ten in the world. I consider him the David Ferrer of the late '80s and early '90s, and he's currently sure. training Opelka, right? So, so anyway, um, it was to be a pro, and George told me when I was about seven or eight years old, "You better pick a sport right now." And, and people say, hey, you got to play multiple sports and this and this and this. But maybe for that time or whatever, it was if you don't pick a sport, I don't really think you're that serious. So I don't want to train you and spend all these hours with you. I'm telling you, it was it was very tough. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were there to produce champions. So um, so basically going back, you know, um, if you go back to, you know, my junior career, I became you know, pretty elite when I was 16. I started playing professional tennis when I was 16. I was sent on the road by myself to play professional tennis. Plane flights, you know, car rides, who I'm going to practice with, who I'm going to share a hotel room with. I was telling this to a parent the other day, and I know parents, they may get a little freaked out, right? Yeah. Because- this, oh my gosh! At 16 years old, I take my car, I drive to the Carolinas by myself, go play, you know, fifteen thousand dollar events, men's opens, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, you know, and then at 18 years old, there was a decision to make. I, I got to become the number one player in the country. Alex Bogomolov, I did many years of training with, competed against. He was an unbelievable player. He owned me. Unfortunately. <laughs> right? He, maybe it was a game style and, and, you know, his game style was very tough for me. And I struggled with other players that have, that had very similar game styles to Alex. Um, he was a tremendous player. So he beat me in the semifinals of Kalamazoo. Brian Baker was on the other side um, a year or two younger than us. And Alex got him in the final. Um, if it was, if I had unlimited resources and the financial means I probably would have turned pro at 18 years old. Um, the next best option was for me to go to the University of Miami. It was one of my dreams as a, as a child, watching them have tremendous football program and everything. And who was the head coach at Miami? A guy that was hitting in my lessons from when I was about seven or eight years old, Jay Berger. Yeah. So I never even took a recruiting trip. You know how you see all these you know, high level amateurs, they take recruiting trips and all this stuff. We signed the papers. I went straight to Miami. So my, my was managed at Miami through Pierre, um, with a great relationship with Jay, and I spent a lot of hours with with uh, with Jay. Um, and so I had an unbelievable time at Miami. It was great, but was it my dream to be playing at Miami? It was ultimately to be a professional player. So, but you have to have a lot of things in place. You know, not not only be a great player and have you know you know be fast and be tremendously you know fit and you know have a great game and, and all these things but you need a lot of financial backing to do it the right way or it can get very tough. And so at that point at 18 years old
1: we didn't have the resources to do it the right way so the next best option was to go to Miami. Mm-hmm. Those Jay Burger teams. It's funny you mentioned the crunches earlier and I was like, "Oh, you definitely played for Jay Burger." Like that's just <laughs> you know Michael Russell is from my area and You know, you hear stories. I think they're just legends at this point of Michael Russell on a changeover. He's like, oh, I'm going to crank out 250 pushups because that's just what I do. Um, You know, obviously, Jay Berger, to your point, not only working with Opelka now, one of the Pied Pipers in USTA player development. And you talk about your coach, Pierre Arnold, who you've been with for so long now. How have you know, again, and throughout this pod, you've talked about doing things the right way, I guess. In your experience in the junior time, what did that look like? You know, how did that manifest itself? What was the right way of training? And do you think that's still applicable today? So one of the things that bother me a lot is when I hear
0: about whether it's, you know, other coaches or parents saying, well, that's old school. Yeah. <laughs> Those sure. words bother me so much because I consider it proper schooling. Yeah, sure. Right? So so the theme, you know, and and keep in mind, you know, I was brought up in an academy that had 80 or 90 kids, right? And you really wanted to be trained by one of these individuals that were were producing champions, whether it was amateur or professional, right? If they took on your child, you were so grateful and you were so blessed, right? But you were going to do it their way. You could consider it like a Robert Landsdorp in California, right? These disciplinarian type coaches. Um, George's favorite coach was Vince Lombardi, right? (laughs) My favorite guy is Nick Saban. Yeah, sure. Right? So, I love these guys because they have the similar mentality of if we're going to get on the court, if we're going to get on the field, if it's football or whatever, we're going to do it the right way. And and that was from not only my tennis arena where I was training and the coaching, but it was also at home. So, you know, when 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 you when you when when I start assessing students, I'm also looking at the parents, I'm looking at the upbringing, I'm looking at the previous coaching. All these things are going through my mind. To figure out how to get the most out of each student right and so but it was a very common theme amongst you know all the students in the academy but also the coaches is that we're either going to do it the right way or we're not doing it and it got very uncomfortable at times <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be great you're going to have a lot of tough moments they told you things that you probably didn't want to hear but they were the truth right and that's why they were so successful and but that's why a lot of these individuals, regardless of whether they you know played at a great college or maybe a professional tennis career, it's why when, when I when I do my research into all the players that came through this type of arena, they've become very successful human beings in whatever they're doing, right? Whether it's a doctor, an attorney. Um, there's a gentleman that I know that's very high up in Tiffany's Jewelers. I mean, you name it. These 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 gentlemen and and women have skills that you know can't be replicated in in a classroom as much as I love you know academics and everything which is tremendous there are things that you learn as an athlete
1: that you can't learn anywhere else if it's done the right way Mm -hmm. and that's yeah no I was gonna say certainly the preparation the self-belief you have to have on the tennis court the problem solving that goes in point in point out let alone match in match out uh, those are valuable skills, I agree, that, are, that do feel applicable uh, to non-tennis things, dare I say. Uh, I, I do want to nerd out a little bit with you because, you know, again, I can't help myself. You go to college, yeah. 01 to 03. 03, some, <laughs> I like to say some scholars have argued. It's really just me. Uh, some scholars have argued the 03 Illinois men's tennis team is the best team of all time. You were there for it. Front row seat. Delek, Rom, Wilson, all these guys. Um, Oh, my God. I'm blanking at six. Who clinched it? Uh, Whoever clinched it for them at six singles. Chris
0: Martin.
1: Yeah, thank you, Chris Martin. I was like, cold play. Think cold play. I was like, I got to get there in my head. Let's just (laughs) quick nerd out tangent again. Is that the best team in college tennis history? You saw them. No. Oh, I like that. It's it's oh, duh, because it's Stanford, right? You're gonna say ninety eight Stanford with uh, Alex Kim at six. That, Except- that, that that that
0: is. Listen, I love the Illinois team. Mm-hmm. I played with all those guys on tour. You know, most of them became professional players. I trained with Chris Martin. You know, you had Phil Stolt on that team. You had uh, Michael Calkins, yeah. right? So just to keep in mind, my, you know, the Illinois team came to Miami. And I played Michael Calkins, and I beat him in a very tough three-set match. And I'm number one for Miami, and Michael was five for <laughs> Illinois. That's how good their team was. Mm-hmm. And and then we went to Illinois, and Amir Delick didn't play. And maybe – I think Brian Wilson played, but he may have been playing too. And they put Ram against me, and he beat me. And he was really their number three. But then I got him at NCAAs. Seems like a common <laughs> You know, maybe I'm not a great team player. I don't know. <laughs> but, I know.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm better in the individual singles at NCAA's. Who knows? But um, but you know that team was tremendous. I grew up with Amir Delic here in Florida. You know, he moved from Bosnia. He was an incredible player, incredible uh tour player. I played him many, many times. I played Rajiv Ram many, many times. I played Brian Wilson. I believe a couple of times. I know him very well. Um. You know, that team, Chris Martin was top 10 in the world in juniors, and he was playing number six. Nice. And then not only that, a good friend of mine is Rylar DeHart, and he took a recruiting trip to Miami. And I was thinking, man, it would be great to have this guy. He's top five in the country for all the parents, you know, that that think their children are great and they should be playing at a certain spot in the lineup. Da, da, da. My good friend Ryler DeHart was not starting his freshman year at Illinois, and he was top five in the United States.
1: Yeah, it's just crazy. And no, I yeah. mean all of those guys. Like if I'd have told you two decades later, Rajiv's going to be number one in the double uh, in the world in doubles, still, would you have called me crazy?
0: Possibly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we knew. Listen, we we knew that he was tremendous. Mm-hmm. Right. He he loved tennis. He's um, rambrous. Exactly. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What we used to call him, uh, you know, obviously Pete is his idol, and many yeah. of the strokes have been developed uh, similarly to Pete's. Um, you know, he's really the last guy standing in my generation. So it's great to see him winning doubles titles. I I got to play some doubles with him. I probably shouldn't. He shouldn't have picked me as a partner some weeks on the tour. Not good enough to be playing with that guy, but, uh, but, but a great guy, a total class act. The guy worked at his game. And you know what? I don't, you know, people would say, oh, he's not fast enough. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. The guy has done incredibly well. Right. You know, and uh, that's that's a testament to to him because he has continued to work at it. And he's a tremendous guy, the nicest guy, very giving guy uh, with his time and everything. He's he hit with one of my students years ago. Very
1: nice. And, you know, I can't say enough good things about him. He's just a class act guy and he deserves it. Do you have a Scott Brown story? Scott Brown, Virginia assistant now Vanderbilt at the time. I think he is one of the most. He's a personality. I just wish I knew better because I just. I'm just. I'm in awe.
0: You know, I don't know Scott Brown well, but I watched that finals of NCAA's in 2003, and obviously, I know Bobby Reynolds very well. Right, tremendous coach in college tennis at Auburn, and then there was a gentleman that played number two, Chad Harris. Those two guys were excellent, excellent players. Obviously, Bobby was a tremendous tour player and played a lot of doubles with Rajiv Ram. Um, but um, you know, and Chad Harris, who could have been a pro, he was great. He was a really good player too. Um, but Bobby, you know, took it to the highest level. He was, a, you know, a tremendous competitor, great player. I got to play with him and practice with him many times. So,
1: yeah. No, but Scott- I Bobby. Dear friend of the show now, um, okay. I, I went – I called NCAAs in 01, uh, 01, in 21, and I was there when they made the doubles final. And the okay. next morning – I don't want to say he was hungover. But emotionally, he was definitely hungover. And it was just like the two of us on the early flight out of Orlando. And I was like, am I going to go say hello? And like right as I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do it. He pops his headphones in. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not. I was like, I'm going to leave this man to himself uh, today. But I love Bobby. He's such a such a kind yeah. man. And, you know, a lot yeah. of these guys, it, you know, it's interesting because looking back, obviously, we talked about Dalek. Rahm, some of these guys who went on to have pro success. You have a guy like Matthias Boker at the time who I think is the last player to win the Triple Crown singles, doubles, and team title all in the same year on the men's side. What was the level of college tennis like then? Because now, certainly Nori, you know, guys like Garon and Rinder Kanesh, there's 12 of them in the top 100 right now of singles, 34 in the top 100 of doubles, was that a, was it a similar level at the time and people just weren't talking about it as openly? Or has college tennis gotten better over the past two decades? Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, good question. I talk about this with my students, but I don't know if I've ever spoken about this on a podcast for the world to hear. So here's what I believe. And you may agree and you may not, and that's okay. So when I was playing college tennis, you could look at 20 or 30 guys – and say, those guys are good. Like, you know, number one at UCLA, number one at Stanford, number one, you know, maybe Miami, Illinois, you know, Virginia, Vanderbilt, Kentucky with Jesse Witten, right? A guy that I grew up playing, you know, many years against as well, we grew up together. Um, University of Florida, you know, all these tremendous, tremendous schools the number ones were really good. Like you know, there I would say that there were at least twenty or thirty guys in the country that you could look at and say those guys can be top hundred in the world. Mm-hmm. Do you have some guys in college tennis that that are that are terrific? I mean, Cameron Norrie's one of them. You know, John Isner. You know, I played him when he was uh, kind of coming out of college. Um, Steve Johnson. You know, you have a couple. Ben Shelton is is playing. You know incredible tennis you know his dad's done an incredible job i have so much respect for them i mean i've known brian for a very very long time um i think it was deeper in terms of you know in my generation in terms of a professional prospect right interesting when you when you you look at you know college tennis players now and i and i watch it here and there and everything and um there's there's maybe a handful right, where you're like, hey, that guy is special, you know, he could go on to be top 50 or top 100 in the world, I would, I would guesstimate that when I was, that went my generation, that, you know, you would look at 20 or 30 guys and say, man, that guy is really good, really special, and they can take it to the highest level.
1: I guess where I would disagree with you, I think the top end was certainly the same, like, you can't look at that 98 Stanford team and not say one to six. That team, you could put them into today's college tennis and they'd be just fine. I think the real difference is the teams rank 25, 35, 45, 75. It's like one through six now. They're all futures level players. And yeah. I think the depth is better now. It is interesting. I mean, look, if you would have asked me, there are two guys. I think if you play... In 2008, at the University of Athens, Somdev gets Federer 7-6 in the third. Like, that's how good Somdev was in 08. Like, again, if it, not at Wimbledon, but if it's in Athens, I'll take Somdev in that match. I also, till my dying day, 2011, Alex Damajan, if he just turns pro, he walks into the top 100. Like, that was the original 6-7 behemoth who could move. Um, but these are just random asides here. I guess it's just... Maybe now, because you talked about the financials earlier, and we go full circle here. And again, last few questions for you. If you're talking to a high-level junior, nowadays it feels like, you know, if they're top 200, they're probably going to turn pro. If you are not 18 years old and already playing challenger events, would you recommend someone go to the college route? Do you think college is still, with our previous discussion in mind, a viable pathway to the pros? sure so everything has to be managed very well okay right if you have a professional prospect
0: whether they turn pro at 18 or turn pro like i did at 20 um but keep in mind i was already playing professional tennis at 16 yeah right I, you know i started you know which i believe is probably kind of normal you know if you have you know a good player and everything 16 17 years old you're starting to get your feet wet into futures and 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 here's the thing and i had this discussion with some with a couple of parents the other night of, of a student that 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 I trained that uh, that is a great player is that a college coach right when 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 they're recruiting right and especially international players a lot of them have professional experience okay so when you take in an 18 year old into your program if it's a high level program that 18 year old is gonna need to be beating 22 year olds that are playing futures and challengers for that program. That may freak some parents out because they're hoping their kid, you know, does well at Kalamazoo and national clays and, you know, winter nationals and indoors and, and these things, but ultimately, right? Like you said, college tennis, you're very right, is that the teams that are 30 and 50 and 70 in the country, they're deeper now, right? I agree with that 100% I believe that there were probably more superstars when I went out when I was you know coming through college um, now to make that decision to turn pro at 18 years old is very important you have to look at the maturity the work ethic but then if we go back to the financial resources is that it's really about a five-year plan and that is very expensive to do it the right way you're looking at probably seven figures of money that keep in mind you're not expecting a return on that on that money like many other businesses that's that's what's tough because if you're traveling with a coach and a trainer and especially getting your feet wet in high level professional tennis you're not going to be making money at least for the first couple of years right so so that so that's tough um in terms of futures right? The lowest level, the single A of, you know, if you're, if if it was baseball, it's a single A of 10, right? Futures to me is considered college tennis level. A player that, you know, three, 500, a thousand in the world, you know, those types of players, those are, those are basically college level type of player at 18 years old. If you're not dominating those players, then the tour will be very tough or you have to develop while you're on the tour. And so if, if you have the financial resources and things are in place and the college is paid for for that player for whenever they retire, it could be 30, it could be 25, it could be 35, whatever it is, then it may be a good thing to turn pro. But you have to have really good people in your corner that understand this and how to manage it and not just throw players around and hope for the best, because that usually is not going to work out well. But, you know, it it takes a lot and you need people that are experienced in your corner.
1: Are there college coaches in particular you admire right now?
0: Yes. You know, if you're going to college and you're really a professional prospect, you're going to have to do extra. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: For example, I did extra training with Jay Berger for at least an hour, two hours privately every single day. Mm Mm-hmm. Will every coach do that with your child? No, they're not, they're not, they're not getting paid more to do that. Or, you know, they have to really care and want to do it and love that student. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there are out there, but if you are truly a professional prospect, you're usually not on a team where the other, you know, eight, nine, 10 people are going to become professionals. So if you're going to take it to the highest level and that's your dream and your goal, you have to do things on a different level every single day. Mm
1: -hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, my last two questions for you, you are someone who has had so many different injuries throughout the course of your career. And I'm curious for you, A, you know, what, what does it take to persevere through those injuries? And, you know, again, why did you keep coming back?
0: Sure. So... This is, you know, it's a little bit of a diff, you know difficult discussion and it's something, you know, that I, that I really monitor with my students every day is making sure their body is healthy. And so I'll tell you exactly why, you know, things happen the way they happened when, when I was on tour. So as an amateur, you know, you have, you know, a little here and a little there, but nothing, nothing crazy. Right. And so I had major injuries on tour. And so just like I previously said, you know, the vast majority of, of, of kids in college tennis, they're, they're you know they're they're not going to be professional tennis players so they may try some futures and try it out and you know you know before they get a job but, you know I, I don't really consider that a professional player when you're a professional tennis player it is your livelihood you're going out there to earn a living be great every part of your day is like you're in the office whether it's you know physical training the nutrition the mental aspect you know, the tennis aspect, obviously the traveling, the management of one's career, that's really a professional tennis player, professional athlete. Okay. If we go back to the injuries that I had. And so what I had in a six year period was, was, was very tough. And I consider myself, you know, when I was on tour, maybe a little bit of a lower level, Brian Baker, who had a lot of issues, right? If you do your research or, you know, I'm sure, you know, cause you have done your research. <laughs> so You know, I started with a torn rotator cuff, then I tore my hip twice, then I tore my left knee, dislocated the right knee. I actually had a bout with cancer in my left eye that needed to be cut out, you know, due due to sun exposure. And that was all in only six years and, you know, maybe some other little things, but those were more of the major things, right? When I look back on the physical training that we did in college, no good, right? (laughs) And did they know any better? Maybe not. So, you know, and, and and I was brought up in an arena where when the coach said something, you did it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't question, I didn't, you know, you, you were part of the team and you did it. When you look back on the things that we did, no one does that. No one does that anymore. And so that's what made it tough. That's why I started to have issues on tour. And so when we go back to really managing a career properly, right from the physical aspect to the mental aspect to the tennis training to the proper scheduling of tournaments to you know many different factors that was not good yeah. right and uh you know it's it's unfortunate and everything but at least i have learned and uh and so you know we're teaching the students and everything and and we have a very good knowledge of you know how to keep kids healthy i have you know, a guy that works on the top athletes in the country and my students, if anything happens to them, they're in the office immediately. And usually they're right back and healthy again. But you know, that, that was, that was tough. When I look back on that, I was like, that was barbaric and, and, and not, not smart, not yeah. smart, but also keep in mind that the majority of, of tennis players, are not going to be professional players. So by the time they're 22 years old, you know, they're going off to, you know, other, other aspects of their life into, you know, a professional working world and all that. I was the only guy at the University of Miami that was going to, you know, become a professional player.
1: No, and yes, obviously, uh, you know, again, you've reflected on those things, work them into your coaching now. And, you know, again, I'm reserving the right to bring you back because I still got some questions in the queue. My last one for you, just a fun one. You can yeah. replay any match from your career. Pick one. What is it? Uh Yeah. We'll get the Jeopardy music going as you, uh, as you make your decision. Okay. So here's the thing. So I lost two very, very tough semifinal
0: matches in my career and you know them for sure. (laughs) (laughs) The semifinals of Kalamazoo to Alex Bogomolov That was very tough because what you don't know, there's no way you could look this up and find it. I played in the finals of a men's open the week before and I should have beaten him. And I beat this guy one time in my whole life in a challenger and, uh, and we trained many hours together as well, but he beat me, you know, pretty handily four and three in Kalamazoo to play Brian Baker in the final. I felt like, At that time, Brian may disagree, but I felt like Alex and I were the two best tennis players in the United States. Right. So but there was Alex Bogomolov in my way again. Right. (laughs) So that was tough. But then the other tough one was actually the semis of NCAAs. My sophomore year at Miami, Um, I lost to a gentleman that maybe your viewers would maybe know. Most likely they wouldn't know this gentleman, Benedict Dorsch. Yeah. Baylor, of course. From Baylor a future was,
1: champ, right? He wins the next year.
0: Yeah. And that was to play Amir Delek in the final. I served with match point in the third set tiebreaker. And keep in mind, there's no short stuff or any of that, <laughs> like a three hour absolute war battle out there. And uh, I serve what, what I thought was maybe an ace. Maybe it was out. I put my hands up and there was a late call. And I end up losing, and I had that was match point. I end up losing eleven nine in the third set tiebreaker on center court at Georgia after beating the number one at Georgia pretty handily in the quarterfinals. Um, and I was having a great tournament, and I beat Rajiv Ram, you know. Yeah. So that was, you know. So so I was having a great tournament, but um, but to play Amir Delic, who I grew up competing against. Um, you know play him in the finals of NCAA's and the University of Miami hadn't had someone in the finals of NCAA's in you know I think a very long time. And so that was tough. It was a great match. I mean listen, someone someone's going to lose and someone's going to win. So, you know, those 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 were those were tough matches, but you know, hey, I went out there I fought fought hard and tried my best you know
1: no those are two fun ones and obviously two guys who went on to be pretty successful uh in their tennis careers as well so fun ones obviously to keep in mind and again i'm reserving the right to bring you back i still got more questions in the queue but uh for now i will let you go coach and immensely grateful you took the time to chat with us here today have been a fan of your work and heard you on some of the other podcasts that you have done so appreciate you taking the time to join us here Excellent. Well, thank you, Alex. You know, I'm, I've been
0: on a bunch of podcasts, you know, since I've been coaching these last 12 years and I enjoy them all, you know, regardless of the questions or, you know, whatever tennis subject we're speaking about. I love it. You know, it's great. I love, obviously I love the game and I'm about to jump on the court right now to start hitting some balls and uh, let's work some of these kids out. So, yeah, exactly.
1: yeah. Well, good luck to the two hips, uh, you know, the knees, the shoulder as you're out there, but appreciate taking the time to chat. And uh, hopefully we will talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it
0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Todd I'm A massive thank you to Todd for taking the time to speak with us. Always enjoy getting to pick the brain of a fellow tennis nerd. And certainly you can tell within two minutes of speaking with him how much wisdom Todd has about the game, of course. By the way... Todd, not the only sharp tennis mind we have spoken to of late here on this Cracked Interviews podcast. So many great guests on the show, whether it be Pam Shriver, Nick Monroe, Kareem lot so many more. Not only have we had great conversations, we've got a lot of great conversations planned coming up over the next month as well. So be sure to keep tuning in to this Cracked Interviews podcast feed, of course, for more off-season podcast, the mini break pod, the great shot pod. We're covering it all here at Crack Rackets as we try to prepare you listeners and tennis fans for the 2023 season. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff who has a f- of an any job to do day in, day out, making all of our Crack Rackets content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Swing Vision. Remember to learn more about all of their innovations in the tennis artificial intelligence space. Just click on the link in The description to this podcast. With that said, for the fantastic Todd Whittem, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, excuse me, our friends at Swing Vision, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.